Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Good morning, Vermont. This is the Tuesday edition of Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Brad Wright. We have what I hope you'll think is a very interesting program lineup for you this morning. More and more on the streets that can accommodate them, we are seeing bike lanes. Getting to work this time of year on a bicycle is going to be a little chilly, a little dicey, but make no mistake, bikes, e-bikes, scooters are more and more a method of transportation that is working for some. The executive director of Local Motion, Christina Erickson, joins us in just a moment. Can you imagine a situation in which your important surgery is postponed because of a lack of blood? Don't think it can't happen. Only a very small percentage of eligible Americans donate blood. We will talk about the blood supply issue with Dan Dowling of the Red Cross in this hour. In just a couple of days, sports gambling becomes legal in Vermont. This is quite a change from where we have been. But other states couldn't wait to jump in. We will discuss this with Wendy Knight, the commissioner of the Liquor and Lottery Department in state government that will now be regulating sports betting. And we will also get into some movies, movie reviews, and the Golden Globes. Who boy. Uh, and maybe some small screen entertainment with Margot Harrison of Seven Days. That's all coming up. But our first guest is Christina Erickson, the executive director of Local Motion Vermont, a nonprofit. Local Motion does a great deal to encourage people to get on bikes and get on the rail trails of our state, whether it's your preferred method of rolling, running, or jogging. I think the message is, look, you live in a beautiful state. Get out there and enjoy it. Local Motion devotes a serious amount of energy to safety as well. Christina, welcome. Thanks, Brad. It's uh, thanks to be here. Glad to be here with you. Absolutely. Uh, we're very, very fortunate to have you. Um, in the interest of full disclosure, I will mention here that I did some work for Local Motion on the Colchester Causeway last year. Um, and um, there is a, quite a lot of history out there on the Colchester Causeway. And for those folks who don't know, uh, the Colchester Causeway is the old line railroad support system that went out uh, to the edge of um, Mallets Bay. Uh, there's a little 200-foot cut for people to get their boats in and out of the bay and into the broad lake, and then it continues into South Hero. Um, Christina, how did things go out there this year? Well, Brad, it was a, an interesting season, as always, and uh, we are glad that you were part of our crew this year. Um, the the causeway and the bike ferry itself is really part of the the story of local motion itself uh, and how we founded as an organization. So this season, you know, we it's a boat. Anyone who has a boat know that boats uh, have issues, and so you know we had our share of mechanical issues, and so we were down for a few days. 
but I think that pent-up demand, once we got back up and running, um, people were out in droves and so glad uh, that they were. And it's just wonderful to see the, the pure joy that people experience out there. And, you know, determination for those not on an e-bike. You know, they've pedaled themselves out there. And, and even if they are on an e-bike, it, it takes some doing. You face the uh, headwinds. You might get some precipitation your way. Um, and so it's, it's a good challenge to get out there and then enjoy that 12 minute boat ride to the other side. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, um, heard that, uh, after the mechanical issues were resolved and the fer- the bike ferry was back in operation that the, the first Saturday, which happened to be a very nice day, uh, set a mm. record for, um, for, for passenger traffic. I do believe that's true, and I think um, you know you, you would speak to this better than I. But but I understand the crew, um, and you know we've got different folks on staff each day. But they pride themselves on those on those busy days, and I'm not sure they're quite keeping score. But we definitely keep track of each of our and all of our passengers to make sure they've gotten back and forth safely. Um, and yeah, that was a very big day, wasn't it? Boy, it really was. Um, I, I I think I recall it was just over 800 people, and. Uh, uh, for a uh, for a boat that only handles eighteen a max of eighteen bikes uh, mm-hmm. on a, on a given trip, that's quite something. Um, so, what does the future of uh, the bike ferry look like to you? Well, and and again, the the bike ferry was really how this organization started twenty five years ago this year. Um, it was in a different location, and so the original, you know, the founding of Local Motion was really about this idea of getting people across this newfangled concept of a, of a rail trail here in Burlington. And it was for those who who haven't been on our trail and what's officially called the uh, Burlington Greenway anytime today or in the last ten years, you can't imagine the waterfront without it, but it was not always there and it was not always in this beautiful condition. And folks on either side didn't always want it to happen, um, but it did. And it's amazing. And so there was, there was a gap. The original train bridge had, had uh, been dismantled. And so local motion founders um, said, well, let's get a small boat there. And I think that it was a six passenger boat back and forth in those days in 1999. And then eventually, after the hard work of many and many dollars invested, a, a bridge across the Winooski River uh, was constructed 20 years ago. It will be celebrating its 20th anniversary this summer. And then Local Motion team shifted the uh, bike ferry concept up to the causeway. So the future of this is, you know, we, we still see a future of, of the bike ferry. We would like it to better align with our sustainability goals as an organization and, and in the state where we live. And so right now it runs on two combustible, combustible, uh, you know, fuel engines, which is, is not ideal for, for many reasons. And so we're forming an advisory team of folks to really dive into the, the puzzle of how can we adequately power a, a boat um, with a renewable energy source so that we are doing better for water quality and renewable energy um, and all of the components that go into that. So I invite any listeners that love a good puzzle and love boats and renewable energy and batteries and all sorts of things to, uh, if you're interested, we're looking for people, good tinkerers and minds to come together to figure this puzzle out. Now, it really does sound like you're talking about um, – uh, 
converting the bike ferry from the two outboard engines that it currently has to electric. Um, and that, uh, all I can say is, wow, it sounds fantastic. I don't, uh, I, to, to be honest, uh, it's been a while since I've owned a boat, so I, I haven't kept up with that piece of it. But are there electric boats out there already? There are, yep, and um, and there are a few models, and, and it may be a conversion of the existing boat. It may be an all-new boat together, and so that's part of the research that, that we're needing to do. And um, we're lucky that there is an, an example here um, at the UVM Rubenstein Lab here on the waterfront on Lake Champlain. They now have uh, an electric hybrid research vessel that was as I understand it, took took a lot of time and dollars and, and research to figure out how to do it and then to get it up and running. So, But there are examples in other parts um, of the country and, and likely the world, and that's part of the research that we want to do to adequately you know, just get the right vessel and the right power needs for, for what we're trying to do. Boy, yeah. Um, uh, I... It sounds fascinating. Um, I, mm-hmm. I have to believe that um, this is going to happen uh, sooner or later because we simply don't have a choice if you keep up with, um, you know, what's happening with, with the climate issues. Um, Absolutely. Uh, it, the one thing about, that I wanted to mention to you about the, about the uh, cut um, that uh, before we get to other things is uh, – the tourist traffic out there seems to have changed. It, it to me, it looks like um, the the causeway itself and the bike ferry are in fact a destination, not just a way to get from one side of the cut to the other. Yeah, I think we see riders um, of from all all walks of life and and all types of modes. And so certainly, when when people come and rent bicycles from us here on the waterfront from our Trailside Rental Center, it, it's the top destination. And so you know, we I think we rented um, to eighteen thousand people last summer, um, and most of them were heading out to the causeway and or and back. Um, we definitely do see still some tour groups come through from variety of of touring companies that are, you know, putting trips together and, and having participants ride upon. And then we've got folks who are self-supported um, tourists who are traveling perhaps between and, and now what is uh, the, the Western New England Greenway, which takes people actually from New York City to Montreal. Um, and so I think that as a as a destination and as an end-to-end ride or back-to-forth, I guess, however people are going to do it, um, we may see more travelers come that way. And there are some daily commuters. Um, I, in fact, there I have I, I understand one individual actually has his own boat, but he uh, comes in back and forth rowing his own uh, rowboat across with his bicycle to then commute down to, down to work and back and forth. So um, there and and that is you know another potential future down 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 the road and dreaming potentially really big is is could that be a permanent um uh, a permanent crossway with a bridge of some sort um so that year round people could get back and forth um because again seasons are changing extending and it's not necessarily uh, feasible to potentially run a boat the entire season but if there was another way to getting back and forth that's a possibility yeah. Um, and then we certainly see residents really enjoying, you know, all residents of Vermont and New York coming over to enjoy this this fantastic landscape um, that the causeway is. And I anticipate that on April 8th, 
um, the day of the full solar eclipse, I have a feeling it's going to be a popular destination to, you know, get your bicycle out and go to the causeway to, to watch the um, watch the eclipse. And we're we're considering and potentially um, having some valley bike parking out there. Because um, if it's a reasonable day, we think there's going to be some traffic and hopefully lots of people on bikes. I'll bet. I'll bet. And uh, I would assume that the bike ferry would not be making that trip out on April 8th, being it a little will on the not. chilly side. No, yeah. I mean last year it, in April the bay was still iced in, so we don't. We are not uh, anticipating having the boat available at that at that date. Uh, Christina. Um, Obviously, donations are um, are very important to how local motion uh, uh, runs. How can people donate if they would like to? Yeah, thanks, Brad. Um, so yes, local motion is a nonprofit. We are a statewide organization, and our mission is to make it safe, accessible, and fun for everyone to bike, walk, and roll in Vermont. And and individual and um, business and corporation donations are are very, very welcomed. And so you can simply go to localmotion.org, and there's a donate button right on the top of the page. Pretty easy. That's fabulous. Uh, 802-244-1777 is the number to call if you'd like to speak with Christina Erickson to ask her about what's happening with um, local motion Vermont. Um, before we get to your uh, legislative priorities, I wanted to ask you what you think of this uh, seemingly uh, revolutionary e-bike um, presence that is that has uh, descended on Vermont. Um, uh, local motion rents them. Other organizations rent them. Um, people buy them. Um, it seems astounding to me that it's happened this fast. Yeah, it really is, and I would say it's it's certainly not just here in Vermont. It's across the country and, and really across the world, and I think it is this new tool um, that is really – it is pretty revolutionary because it's getting a lot of people either who have never been on a bike, out on a bike, or those who were on a bike a long time ago perhaps or – um, have different mobility challenges, and it, is, it really is allowing more people um, to get out and enjoy the outdoors and to connect with one another by having, you know, this good outdoor experience. So um, also for others, it is a, a lifeline of commuting, and so people either may not be able to drive or have the financial ability to drive a vehicle. They may not have access to the bus line, and so by having an e-bike, you can just go that much further without that much more physical exertion um, and, and get to your workplace or get to other, other errands or places with, without a single occupancy vehicle, which is, which is what I find really exciting and, and how we're, we're really excited about that as, as part of the mix of transportation options that, that Vermonters and, and everyone have, have access to um, as really getting more single occupancy vehicles off the road and so having more options for people to, to get to where they need to go and, and safely. And and uh, uh, without uh, uh, tailpipe emissions, right? I mean, the, exactly. these these are um, electric bikes. You recharge them at home or in the rental shop, right? That's correct. Yep. So they are a simple plug-in. You don't need a, a special power outlet or anything. It's just a standard. There are best practices of of charging and and when and where and how to charge your battery. And we always encourage people to follow manufacturer instructions on that. Um, and for, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and uh, yeah, just to follow instructions with that. And 
and and with anything and and we're we're you know safety is part of our our mission um we want to make sure that people are riding with courtesy uh for all users of the roads or or bike paths or rail trails or all of that and so yielding always to a slower uh person or animals or other piece, people no matter what conveyance they're on, whether they're feet or a scooter or a, a wheelchair or anything, you know, whoever's going slower gets gets the benefit. And so use courtesy. We always, you know, no matter what you're riding, call out to folks that if you're passing to do so or use your bell or use your voice bell um, to let people know. Um, and, and yet they are new, they are growing um, in use. And so I think with any kind of new, rapidly growing field, there's there's concerns, there's people um, who don't know what they are or how they work or what the laws are or what the rules are. And so we, we see it as part of our role to help people understand that, um, understand what the rules and laws are. Um, and uh, it all, again, comes down to courtesy as well um, and just making sure you're abiding by what we're supposed to be doing and what our community needs uh, in terms of caring for one another. Right. Uh, a little bit of respect for, for the other guy. Exactly. So let's yep. talk about your legislative proposals. Uh, what do you think is uh, the most important? What are you going to be bringing to Montpelier to, um, uh, to talk with uh, the folks there about um, how to advance this mission? Yeah, so part part of local motions work is not just getting people out on bicycles, but providing the the or encouraging and advocating and lobbying for um, infrastructure and policies that really support that. Because what we know is the number one barrier why people do not ride a bicycle or get out in other ways is because they don't feel safe, and that might be because the roads are too busy, or there's not a dedicated bike lane, or there's not a sidewalk um, or a crosswalk where they need to go to get to where they're trying to go. So um, we have a number of different um, initiatives that we are uh, promoting this in the second half of the biennium in the legislature. And and I'm very much still learning this, and I'm so grateful for the team that we have um, here at Local Motion. And there's two folks who work in our Complete Streets program that, that really work on on, on this uh, most specifically. And so they're, they're the excellent brains behind mu- much of this work. Um, and that's Jonathan Weber and Susan Grasso, and I'm really grateful to the both of them. Um, and then we also do this work in conjunction with um, a, a statewide affiliation called Transportation for Vermonters, and we are a coalition of different transportation-related organizations that come together on, on shared legislative priorities. Um, and so some of these that I'm going to talk about um, are shared with Transportation for, for Vermonters, but these are the, the ones that Local Motion um, is, is specifically calling for. And, um, you know, the, the funding for active transportation infrastructure, I think, is probably the most important. There are a few um, state grant programs available for towns to, to make that infrastructure, whether bike lanes or crosswalks or other things happen, um, and and they're underfunded. So we have had, let's see, in the the one is called the Bike and Pedestrian Grant Program, has funded only 28% of the large-scale requests that have come in from cities and towns across Vermont, and only 67% of the small-scale requests over the past six grant cycles. So there's a lot of good ideas um, and projects that are ready that towns are wanting to do, and there's just not enough funding available to make them all happen um, currently. So 
we would love to see the the budget for the bike and pedestrian grant program uh, grow to twenty million for the large scale grants and to six hundred thousand for the small scale grants um, in order to meet the not even all but you know more of the municipal requests so um, that that that's a big one and and that's something that would have such an amazing trickle effect too by having um, opening up uh, the grant funding and so that towns can complete these projects and just uh, the the ability and access for more and more people to get out and get through that number one barrier of not feeling safe because they don't have a dedicated place for to walk bike or roll given the uh, given the money issues that we're experiencing do you think that mm-hmm. um, uh, that's going to be a, a, a tough climb? Well, um, yes and no. I mean, we, we understand that, you know, they're, because of the federal dollars through the Infrastructure um, and Inflation Act that are coming through, we think there are more um, opportunities and really it's a, there is some choice involved of what gets funded. Um, there, there are many needs and, and I, you know, here, talk about opening a opening a, a hot topic, but you know what, what gets what deserves more <laughs> quicker uh, or uh, funding more immediately, and so that that is hard. And many of these walk, bike, pedestrian uh, projects really also help other things that were other issues that we're facing. Um, related to flooding and, and river um, uh, watershed areas and, and all of that. So, again, we see these as um, projects that really touch a multiple um, topics that um, maybe other other road construction projects may not. So th- there, there, are, there are choices on how those dollars get spent, and we are just hoping that a, a smaller – a bigger slice, but a small slice of the overall pie can can go to some of these walk bike projects. Now, um, in a, a minute or so we have left, um, uh, there's also um, uh, funding for e-bike incentives um, in order to help help this e-bike uh, revolution along for people to get uh, alternative transportation. Um, that's a priority too. It is, and so for the last two years, there have there have been a, a pool of dollars for people to apply to to get a rebate for for e-bikes used primarily for transportation. Again, we're talking about lowering emissions, trying to get more single occupancy vehicles off the road, um, and those dollars have gone very very quickly. And so uh, right now, um, there's 70 percent of this year's funding have, has already been used with six months remaining in the fiscal year. So um, we. We would love to see the budget for those incentives be increased to half a million dollars. Right, um, right now, I think it was $150,000. And so, and one of the, the excellent shifts in the last year and that we'd like to keep encouraging is to um, increase the rebate for low-income participants. Again, if we're really talking about trying to get people where they need to go in a, in a carbon-free, pretty way. Christina, then, I'm, um, I'm sorry I have to interrupt because we have to hit a break. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. This is WDEV and Vermont Viewpoint. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Brad Wright. So ask yourself this question. Have you ever donated a pint of blood? It goes without saying that if you've never thought about it, there truly is no time like the present. Uh, I received a text from the Red Cross last week indicating that there is now urgent need, a genuine shortage. 
Dan Dowling is the Regional Communications Manager for American Red Cross of Northern New England. The Red Cross is a nonprofit organization that supplies about 40% of the nation's blood. The organization also shelters, feeds, and provides comfort to victims of disasters, teaches skills that save lives, distributes international humanitarian aid, and supports veterans, military members, and their families. Before joining the Red Cross in the May, in May of 23, Dan Dowling was a broadcast meteorologist for Channel 3 WCAX for 24 years. He is also an adjunct professor of communications at Vermont State University. Dan, welcome. Good morning, Brad. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so we have a blood shortage. I have your uh, press release here, and the headline reads, Emergency Blood Shortage May Delay Medical Procedures. Um, that sounds rather dire. Um, what kind of procedures are we talking about? But And, and, and if you could, just uh, tell us how short are we in the blood supply? Sure. Well, a little bit of background. You know, this all coincides with National Blood Donor Month, which has started back in 1970. You know, and this is typically a time of year when we have uh, fewer donations than than we would have during the, the rest of the year. Um, and so, but this also coincides now we're in a, an emergency blood shortage. So we have seen our donor base fall about 40% in the last 20 years. So back in 2003, we had 3.7 million donors. Now we have 2.1 million donors. So when you get into a time of year like we are here in January, these shortages are harder to bounce back from. Back in between Christmas and New Year's, we had about a 7,000 unit shortfall uh, you know, during that week. So we are trying to replenish that, that stockpile. Now, you know, as far as shortages to hospitals, the Red Cross is working with hospitals now to make sure that we minimize the impacts uh, of, of blood going to uh, uh, hospitals. Uh, but that certainly, you know, could impact elective surgeries uh, and, and hopefully, you know, you know blood uh, donations will help, you know, revitalize that 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 inventory, I think, over, over the next couple of weeks. Now, the shortage um, and shortfall in donations that you mentioned, is this pandemic-related? Well, I think we've certainly seen evidence of that, um, you know, as far as, you know, younger people, um, you know, who would donate on college campuses. We had about uh, 26, uh, 260,000 donors uh, between 18 and 24 uh, gave blood to the Red Cross in 2021, that's less than half that we saw two years earlier in 2019. So certainly nationwide, there has been a reduction in people, you know, coming in and donating blood, whether they be at community drives or uh, drives at your place of work or drives uh, at your college campuses. We've certainly seen that impact. But, you know, over the course of two decades, you know, we are seeing a 40% reduction, and uh, that, that's been hard to maintain over the past couple of years. Boy, I'll bet. Um, I didn't realize that the, uh, that the number of donors had plummeted like that. 
Um, I mean, yes, you know, people, the life cycle may be, uh, uh, have something to do with it, I suppose. People donate blood, but everybody passes away. And then, uh, younger people, not, not so much, uh, into it. Is there, uh, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, when the topic of, you know, why didn't you donate blood comes up, um, can't handle the needles. Um, what is how do you get around that or can you well i think i think having someone you know that has either donated blood or need has needed blood i think can get you over the hump of saying look this probably isn't as bad as as you might think it is the the red cross does an amazing job of making the whole blood donation experience as pleasant as possible yes there is a needle stick but, you know, it, it, I, I've started donating blood again over the past several months here just to get back into it. And I can tell you, you know, that, that it's probably not as painful as, as you might make it out to be. Um, and if you are doing it because you know of someone who has needed blood or you've needed blood yourself, I, I think the, the call to action is probably a lot more compelling than, than the, the, the slight little bit of pain uh, that you might have in, in that moment. Yeah, uh, and the good news is you don't have to look at it, right? I mean, you're sitting there, um, and, uh, you know, they, uh, you can look away, uh, and you, ha you do have that option, uh, and, uh, the needle stick, once it's, uh, in your vein, they cover it with a little gauze bandage or something, and so, you don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to look at it. Therefore, you don't have to see it. Um, uh, d does it become more difficult to get people to do this uh, if they are just uh, so afraid of this that it's that it's uh, you know unmanageable? Sure. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there that are just just deathly afraid of needles. And, and wouldn't want to go go anywhere near it. But I would recommend that you give it a try. You know, bring a friend, bring someone who you know who has donated in the past and, and sign up. You'd be surprised how easy it is to sign up for an appointment to donate blood. There are blood drives all across Vermont that are happening every single week. And it's easy to come in, make an appointment, and the whole process uh, it takes about an hour from start to finish, from the minute you walk in the building uh, to the minute that you, you leave. And the actual donation process where you're actually sitting there with a needle in your arm only lasts about eight or ten minutes, tops. Um, and that needle stick, like you said, it just, just takes uh, a moment. But, you know, in my time with the Red Cross over the past couple of months, I can't tell you the amount of stories of, of people who have benefited from blood donation and whose lives have been saved because someone sat there for eight minutes and allowed their, their arm to be, to be stuck. Yeah. I think the message is it really isn't that much of a sacrifice. Um, if, if you, if you really think it through and you have a chance to maybe save somebody's life or at least make their life better. Yeah, I mean, every two seconds, there's someone in the country that needs blood and, you know, only 3% of the population donates. You know, we need more first-time donors. We need more people who have donated pre-COVID to come back and, and, and get back into the routine of that again. And, you know, the feeling that you get from, from donating blood, you know, totally outweighs, you know, uh, any, any uncomfort uh, you, you, might, you might get in that moment. Isn't there some follow-up? Um, I seem to recall last time I donated that uh, someone, uh, I got an email or something, 
or maybe a, a text or something from somebody at the Red Cross that said, yeah, your blood went to such and such a hospital and helped out a person getting through a surgery or something. Yeah, I mean, the technology has come a long way in the past couple of years. And you can download a the Red Cross blood donor app. You can sign up for your appointment. You can manage your appointment. You can do the pre-screening on the app. And then your app will not only keep track of how many times you've donated, but you'll get, like you said, a little text message or a notification that says your blood donation went to help someone, you know, in in such and such a hospital. And and sometimes it's nearby and sometimes it's a little further out. But, you know, the, your blood goes to where it's needed. Uh, you know, your, your blood unit that you donate has only has a shelf life of 42 days. So the Red Cross will take that and make sure it goes to a patient uh, that, 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 that needs it. And, you know, we're certainly looking for different blood types. You know, everyone, you know, has a different blood type, but, you know, type O uh, positive and O, o negative uh, are both in, in high demand right now. Um, if you can imagine, you know, if you experience a, a car accident or you need an emergency surgery and you might not know necessarily what your blood type uh, is when you, when you come into the emergency room, you know, it's that type O uh, uh, negative that, that, you know, that they reach for um, to, to make sure that you get the care that you need. So it's re- replenishing the blood supply, but it's, you know, certain types that are in, in even in more demand right now. Why is type O uh, such a big deal? Well, the, it's, it's the most in-demand type from hospitals. So hospitals are always asking, you know, for, for that type of, of blood. And so, uh, you know, type O negative is, is universal blood type, and that's what they use in emergency rooms. And type O positive is the common, most common blood type, and they use that for, for blood transfusion. So, so each of these different type O's have a different purpose. And so if you are an o, o donor, uh, you know, that, that is this is especially useful. Dan Dowling is our guest from the uh, American Red Cross. Dan, so regional means uh, New England or at least northern New England. How are Vermonters doing with their blood donations compared to other states? Well, I mean, I can only speak to uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, and, and Maine, but, you know, our the Vermont don't blood donors have been amazingly resilient. You know, we've been through the thick of it with disasters uh, this year. And I know that we, we had the flooding in Vermont in July and you know, I was at a blood uh, drive the day after that. And people were, were still showing up. People who had their, their basements flooded out, you know, we're, we're still there. We had to limit the amount uh, of people that we could take in because half of our team couldn't be there to, to, uh, to, to take the donations. But, you know, Vermonters have been tremendously resilient. We've had tremendous success with blood drives, you know, in, in Vermont. Um, you know, things like the, uh, uh, the Gift for Life uh, blood drive in, in Rutland. You know, I was just at a blood drive in Cambridge uh, that also got hit by the flooding in, in July just this past weekend. And I, I met a woman who was a cancer patient, recovering cancer patient. And as a teenager, she needed 200 units uh, of blood, you know, while while she was in treatment, and the the volunteer fire department uh, in Cambridge has been doing this this blood drive annually to to help uh, honor that and support that and give that blood back to to someone else who who might need it. But you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, the Red Cross supplies blood to anywhere that it's needed. So any uh, blood that that gets uh, donated here goes to where it is needed. I can tell you that. The hospitals in Vermont need about 
80 units of blood every day just to maintain uh, the levels you know, that, that they need. So you can imagine trying to get 80 units of blood seven days a week, 365 days a year, whether that be on a holiday or during a big winter storm, you know, that, that, that's, that need for blood never ends. You know, and, and we're, we're, we're relying on the generosity of our donors to, to, to answer the call and, and roll their sleeves. Well, we have uh, some uh, listeners uh, who are calling in to ask questions. Um, first is uh, Steve in Heinsberg. Um, Steve, what's your question for Dan Dowling? Good morning. Uh, hi, Dan. Uh, I've been a donor since the 1960s. And prior to the uh, computer setups of keeping track of how your donations, uh, is there any way of going back and finding out exactly how many, uh, how much blood I've donated? Well, thank you for the call, Steve. Great, great question. And I've had this question before from, you know, donors who have been donating for decades. And unfortunately, in my experience, I've seen that, you know, once the Red Cross uh, kind of digitized this process, I think it was back around 2000, they, they didn't have access to all of the records from donors who have donated in the past. So uh, there's lots of people who have donated, you know, hundreds of units of blood, and we, we just don't have the accurate records to, to really reflect that. But, you know, you know is that you know the the lives that you saved from from the time and commitment that you've had and you know just personally i i thank you steve for for being such a committed donor uh next is uh dick from waterbury uh dick what is your question for dan dowling yeah let's see is there an age limit on when you have to be to be able to donate either lowest age or highest age yeah there is no highest age um, and I think the I think you need to be 16 years old uh, with parental consent to donate uh, at, 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 as a teenager. And um, I was at a blood drive at Rutland High School uh, back last month, and I can tell you, you know, just the eagerness of, of young people that want to, you know, donate and volunteer and rally to the cause. And it's been inspiring for me to see, you know, the younger generation, the younger folks, whether you're high school or even college you know, really kind of pick up, you know, the, the reins and, and really kind of uh, get into donation, especially after COVID, especially after a lot of these schools, you know, have been kind of, you know, virtual or whatever for the past couple of years now. Everyone's kind of getting back out again, and we're trying to get to a new normal, and uh, that's, that's appreciated to see. But at the same time, we have uh, retired people, you know, who have maybe a little more time looking to, to do a little more for their community. And we see the older folks, you know, who are in the 70s and 80s, you know, continue to come in on a regular basis, and they can be some of our more committed donors. And it, it's great to see it on that end as well. I think where I see it is the fact that you have parents, you know, who are in their 30s and 40s, you know, who have kids and jobs, and it's trying to get them to find a time maybe to come in and, and donate as well. So, uh, those are the, the middle age groups, it seems like, when they have the, the busiest schedules, you know, like myself, honestly, you know, to, to find the time to donate. Yeah, I'm wondering if perhaps they might have changed the upper age limit, because the last time I went to donate and filled out the form, they said, whoops, they couldn't because I was too old at that time. Right. As far as I know, that that, that might not uh, that that may be the case, um, but um, I, I can look and in, in, in check in on that for you. 
All right, uh, Dick from Waterbury, thank you very much for your call. Next up, we have uh, Mike from Milton. Uh, Mike, what is your question for Dan Dowling of the American Red Cross? Well, a couple situations. Um, I'm 80 years old, and I just did a power red just before Christmas. All right. And the, the reason I'm doing power reds is the Red Cross sent me a letter saying that they couldn't use my whole blood and anymore because of clogging filters of some sort. And uh, I felt kind of left out, but uh, I know the power red gets divided up, like I guess it's three different ways. But I've been given blood since I was 18. And wow. I did that when I was in boot camp in the Navy. So I yeah. just wondered if you had any idea or if anybody could explain what really is happening as far as clogging filters. Sure. I mean, I can't really speak to, to any you know personal case. You know, I'm certainly not a, a blood donation expert or, or a phlebotomist. But, Mike, I really appreciate your commitment to donating at, at 80. I know Power Reds are some of our most valuable donors where they're able to take that blood donation and separate it into three different uh, products uh, that allow to, to go and, and help patients with, with different needs. Um, you know, certainly a, a power red donation is, is just as valuable as, as a whole blood donation. And uh, I would recommend if you have questions about your, you know, uh, specific condition, you know, situation to go ahead and, you know, call our blood donor center in Burlington and, and they would be happy to help. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. You have a good day. Thank you, Mike, for your uh, uh, call. We appreciate that very much. Uh, Dan, can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, how the uh, Power Red works? What the don I actually did uh, one last time I donated. Uh, I did a Power Red. Can you explain for folks how that works? We just have a couple of minutes left. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a different way of donating blood. Uh, it it takes just a couple of minutes. It's similar to to what they do, but you're you're hooked up to a different machine. And, you know, they're, they're able to take that, uh, that blood donation and, like I said, separate it into uh, three different products. It's uh, the blood, the plasma, uh, and, uh, and, and be able to, to use that, you know, for, for different treatments. So if a patient is in the hospital and they need something for blood clotting or they need something uh, for a transfusion, you know, they're able to use that, uh, you know, blood donation in, in a different way to kind of to help you know, either one patient or, or more than one patient. And, you know, it, it's a specific type of, you know, uh, screening that you go through to, to qualify as a power red. You have to have a certain type of blood and, you know, a certain, uh, uh, you know, amount of, uh, you know, condition for, for what you have. But it's certainly uh, appreciated. And, you know, the, they'll let you know there um, whether you're eligible for a power red donation when you go. And, you know, either or, it's, it's certainly appreciated by, by the Red Cross. Um, the power red situation um, is is pretty easy. I, I think Dan that they actually return some of that uh, that they have drawn out uh, back into you in your other arm. Isn't that the way it That's works? Right. Okay. All right. Um, Dan, uh, and just uh, uh, very quickly in the 30 seconds or so we have left, uh, you're active in flood zones, uh, and like we had last summer, you mentioned that earlier. Um, uh, is there is there any place else where blood is going right now? The blood goes to wherever it's needed, and I think you know with the recent weather that we've had, 
I know there's been cancellations for blood drives throughout the Northeast and even the middle part of the country. So anytime there's a blood shortage somewhere, you know, we're, we're sending that blood to where it's needed. And we rely on everyone to, to you know, answer the call. Uh, you can go to uh, redcrossblood.org and, and make an appointment. Uh, or you can call the Red Cross at 1-800-RED-CROSS uh, and, and make an appointment, and your donation is, is greatly appreciated. And if they can't give blood, can they give a little money? Absolutely. You know, in uh, blood, time, or money, the Red Cross uh, needs everyone's help. There's a place for everyone uh, within the Red Cross, and we're looking for volunteers, and financial donations are appreciated as well. You can go to redcross.org and, and get more information there. Okay. Thank you so much, Dan Dowling of the American Red Cross, for uh, your time today. We appreciate it very much. Give yourself a shot in the arm, folks, by donating blood, because it really is a great thing to do. 